this week on the Back Table Podcast. So I, I go a lot by exam here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because if I've got a good thrill yeah. and it's not pulsatile and I don't feel that resistant kind of pulsatile outflow, then I say, you know what? This is probably not a hemodynamically significant residual clot. Right. You're absolutely right. These large ones are hard to open up. And there's, a, there's actually a, a handful of nephrologists that'll do a mini open thrombectomy where they'll just make a little cut down into that aneurysm, squeeze it all out and then close it off. And they basically will, will just, they'll basically put a balloon on each end. Mm-hmm. So they've got, you know, hemostasis, hemostasis and, and control, you know, proximal and distal controls. They'll put a Fogarty up, they'll put a balloon up, and then you can cut down to the aneurysm, express out all the clot, close that up, and then continue on with your percutaneous kind of side of it. So it's kind of a mini open is what they call it. And, and that's a really fascinating technique. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all the previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is www.backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or send us an email. Let us know how we can make this podcast more valuable resource for you, the um, IR and endovascular community. I'm Chris Beck. I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans. We're going to be talking about D-clots today, so dialysis access maintenance. And we have today Nagai Mala. Man, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I enjoyed last time. I'm looking forward to uh, talking this time. Yeah, just just the audience, like some uh, little behind the scenes. The guy was asking me, he's like, man, what does anyone want to know about D-clots? I mean, could you tell, like, in, I, so the audience kind of knows where that, that question's coming from, from you. Can you talk about your practice and why D-clots for you? You're, you're not really sure why anyone really wants to hear about them. So, so I, I'm an <laughs> you know, interventional nephrologist out of Dallas. I work in a, an ASC setting and I'm, you know, all I do is interventional work. And so it's dialysis, access, maintenance, and we do about 2,500 cases a year at our center. We have two centers in the practice, one downtown, one up in North Dallas, and I'm basically there. And we do about 50 declots a month on average. So we've kind of streamlined the efficiency. I like talking to people to see how other people do things. My partner who joined me 10 years ago to do a declots differently, and we've kind of swapped ideas and shared and you know, kind of modified our technique along the way based off of each other and watching each other do it and talking to each other. So I think it's fun to be able to exchange ideas and how things are done. And I, I really hope that's what today, we get a lot of that today. I, you know, I want to hear how you guys do it. I'll, I'll tell you what I do and, and kind of see what happens along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And we also have with us uh, Aaron Fritz. He's uh, on mute right now, but Fritz is going to be jumping in periodically to throw in some color commentary. Is that right, Fritz? Yes. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. All right, let's jump into it and let's get into the procedure. So when uh, patients come to you and it's a it's a declot procedure, you know it's a declot. What does your workup look like beforehand in the uh, in the center? Do you ultrasound the arm? Do you already and let, let's just say it's one that you've never seen before? Like, do you do anything ahead of time, like as far as physical exam or ultrasound evaluation, to get an idea of like the landscape that you're going to be working on? So I don't do an ultrasound evaluation. I just do a quick physical exam, usually just looking at the skin, make sure there's nothing there, trying to assess for aneurysm sizes that may be complicated along the way that 
but, you know, assuming it's a standard kind of PTFE graft, either straight in the upper arm or a loop in the forearm is really just trying to figure out where the arterial side is. You know, every now and then I have a patient that can't tell me which one's their arterial side. I always like to get my venous access in first. So that's the only reason it matters, but it's, you know, it's not a deal breaker if I can't figure it out. I, I've always been a two sheath kind of guy. I know there's a couple of people that do a single sheath thrown back to me and I, I just don't like flipping back and forth if I need to. So I have always done the two sheaths anyway. So really that's the only thing I'm trying to figure out is, and then basic other things. When was the last time you had an intervention? If we were at our center before, I usually go back and review previous films, but you know, assuming that someone who's here the first time, ask them when was their last intervention, those kinds of things. The pre-op visit is, is, you know, pretty quick. Yeah. Is there anyone that you will not perform a declot on, like in terms of either they've just recently had their graft or fistula placed, or um, do you check any labs beforehand where like someone's potassium hits a certain level where you won't go after a declot? Like, is there ever a situation where you're, you kind of believe to like place the catheter, get dialysis, then, you know, bring them back after the, after, you know, things have kind of settled down? Okay. So I don't have access to labs. So that's an easy answer. I don't. Okay. Um, so I don't worry about potassium. I never worry about INR or platelet counts or anything like that. We just, okay. as far as, is it quicker to put a catheter in? I mean, the ultimate answer is I got to get them dialyzed. And so sure. the is quicker to dialyze, right? And most of the time I, I can do the declot just as quickly as I can do the catheter. So, and again, they're not, dialysis is not always accessible for them. Most of the time they leave me and they go back to their home facility to get their dialysis treatment. So it, it there that I, I don't do the catheter then the only time would be, you know, if they say they absolutely cannot lie flat on the table because they're just so overloaded that I would say, okay, fine, maybe I can keep them propped up, do a quick femoral catheter, get them dialysis and bring them back in, in a couple of days and, and do the declot. Okay. That's fair. And as far as anesthesia requirements for the procedure, are you doing local, um, you know, moderate sedation, somewhere, something deeper? No, just moderate sedation and local. Okay. Yeah. So fentanyl versed pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And, and they, they do fine with that. Okay. All right. So then, so the patient makes it, you know, out of the, the, uh, you know, the preoperative area and they're, they're on the table for you. And um, what are some of the things that you're considering as far as uh, room setup, making sure that you have access to one of the things that, that I feel like sometimes like I struggled with, especially early on was making sure that my techs had the area prepped appropriately and, you know, had the, uh, you know, enough access where you're not just putting one sheath in. I'm, I'm also a two sheath kind of guy. So sometimes like they have to prep a little higher up than they, than they think. But can you talk about like a little bit about room setup and things that you have prepped and ready to go to like create those efficiencies for the procedure? So usually my setup is pretty standard across all of my cases, whether it's an angiogram or a declot. And so the room setup is pretty straightforward. I typically like to stand kind of where the armpit is. If the arm's extended out, I'll stand to where the armpit is for a left arm and I'll stand at the head of the patient for a right arm. So I just kind of stand opposite. So that way, basically my right hand is doing most of the work driving centrally. I see. Okay. Right. Because... And will you talk a little bit about your room setup? Like, are, do you have a fixed system? Is it like a movable C-arm? Because I, that's one of the things like you hear a lot, like the complaints about like if you have a fixed system that sometimes the, uh, I feel like the declot can become a little bit cumbersome because you're either having to break the table or you always feel like you're kind of in the way, uh, like as the operator. Yeah, so I have a movable C-arm. Yeah. And so that way my table is pretty much centered and fixed and, all of the movement is with the, with the II. 
Yeah. That makes it much easier. And my monitors are mounted on the ceiling, so they're easy to swing around to whatever position I need to. Right. Yeah. So you're able to always have, no matter where you stand, you're always able to get the monitors right in front of you. And basically mm-hmm. the C-arm is, is extremely mobile and, and kind of nimble. Okay. Yeah. That, that's a huge advantage. And I, I think one those, of the, those are oh, things I would never think about. Those are things I would never think about. And, you know, because this is all I have and all I know. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, you just make what you make what you have work. All right. So uh, you're starting the procedure, any preoperative uh, medications? Um, do you give heparin? Well, actually just, you know, get into it. Like, let's just like, what, what's the first thing so, you do? So I, don't, I, don't, I don't do a, I don't do an IV in pre-op. Okay. Because, you know, these patients, it's just so hard to get sometimes. So, and I'm going to be in there anyway. So I do all the sedation and medications myself. So we don't have separate IV access for any of our cases. So first I will do in the arterial limb. So let's say it's, you know, closer to the arterial anastomosis. I'll put my seven front sheath in directed towards the outflow. And then usually a comfy catheter straight up into the central veins, do my central run, conscious sedation, 5,000 of heparin. So that's how I start. Well, let me also uh, back you up one. Whenever you're getting access, um, just by palpation, just by feel, you like ultrasound guidance? Uh, I do it just by feel because I've just always done it that way. I use the Merit has a seven French with a micro wire and a micro access mm-hmm. needle. And so that's the, the kit that I use. And so it's a short four centimeter sheath. One of my nuisances and kind of pet peeves are when my sheaths are overlapping and they're kind of... Oh, yeah. So I keep it with a four centimeter sheath for, for my declot and, and I just do it by palpation. If it's somebody that is a fistula that is difficult to palpate, mm-hmm. then I'll bring in the ultrasound and do it under ultrasound guidance. But let's say a PTFE or a very well-established fistula, I'll just go in by feel. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So you do your central run and let's say you do have a central stenosis. Do you go ahead and treat that? while right after you've done your central run or do you reserve that for later i reserve that for the end okay Uh, assuming there's no thrombus burden all the way up to the centrals Mm -hmm. then i would say the you know it's there but it's not the reason for the thrombotic episode and so that's why i say i reserve that for the end let me just go do the declot first and then it's basically like looking at a central angiogram and angioplasty at that point sure all right, so you have your seven French in, you've done your central run, looks clear centrally. At that point, are you getting arterial access? Um, oh, so then I'll do a pullback with contrast. Okay. And I'll just look at the outflow veins to fi- to identify the level of the stenosis. Okay. And so with your graphs, it's usually at the venous anastomosis. So we look at the outflow vein and how much clot burden there is in the outflow vein. Sometimes it's, most of their time, it's not that much. It's all kind of in the graph. Mm-hmm. And so once I d- identify that and I see my thrombus, I kind of stop with my pullback. I'll take the compy out. And then it's a matter of the way I was always taught was outflow, inflow, polish. A lot of people, you know. Well, that's a good summary of the procedure. Right. I mean, if you can do that, then you're good. My partner used to always do, do inflow. So he would do this, get up to this point, mm-hmm. do the central, sedate, pull back, and then he would get his arterial sheath and then do the inflow. And that works okay. too. I mean, it, at the end of the day, I don't think sure. it matters, right? Yeah. How you do it, but it's just different ways of doing it. But I was always taught if there's no outflow and you can't get an outflow, why did you bother with the inflow? So, yeah, I get that. So, so, so I treat the outflow first. Okay. And how do you, how do you treat the outflow? Like, is it a combination of Fogarty and do you use any uh, thrombectomy devices, either aspiration or mechanical? 
So this is where it gets fun. And this is where everybody gets. Yeah, this is where everyone has their own their signature. Own right, exactly. <laughs> and so if it's a small circuit, right, I will most, or if it's, so, okay, so there's a couple of ways of doing it. There's really two ways that I do it. One is either just balloon maceration mm-hmm. and I'll take a seven by eight centimeter balloon and I'll just balloon from, you know, lesion all the way back to the sheath, or I will do a rotational thrombectomy device. And which one I decide kind of varies based off of two factors. One is how much length of the circuit there is. The longer the circuit or the bigger the clot burden, the more likely I am to grab a device as Mm -hmm. opposed to just balloon. Or if it's an older graft and there's a lot of age and I know their history and they've got, not only is the venous anastomosis going to be a problem, but their venous cannulation site, their arterial cannulation site, and I'm expecting and I know multiple disease points along the way, then I'll just balloon it at that point because then you can macerate and treat it all at the same time. Gotcha. As far as um, devices, do you have a preferred device if you are going to go to the device route? So I have three devices in-house. I have an over-the-wire Teratola. Okay. The only reason I don't use it very often is because of cost. It's For an ASC, it's the most expensive having the over-wire device. But on that rare occasion where I feel like I don't want to lose my wire, Mm-hmm. Just because it, for whatever reason, it took so long to get across the venous anastomosis that I just don't want to lose it. I'll grab that. And then I have the Argon Cleaner thrombectomy device. Yeah. And that there's actually two sizes. There's a six French XT and there's a seven French 15 that has a larger diameter. And then I have the D-clot thrombectomy device by Mermaid Medical, which is also a rotational thrombectomy device. So actually I have four because I have two different argons. Okay. So I guess this is this might be getting a little bit into the weeds, but putting the triatola aside where you're trying to maintain your wire access, how do you decide between whether you're not, you're going to go either your seven or six French argon cleaner or... Between the six and the seven French argon, is based off the size. So if I've got a big fistula with a large pseudoaneurysm, then I will grab the seven French usually. It just got the cleaner XT. I think the maximum diameter is 10, maybe 11 millimeters versus the 15 is a 15 millimeter diameter. So I can just get, and it's a stronger kind of battery and rotational force or however, whatever they're doing with there. So I get for a larger aneurysmal fistula, I'll grab the 15 first. Okay. Are there any situations where you, the the reason I'm asking is, so it seems like you're either going balloon maceration or device. Is there any situation where you just go Fogarty and and just push the clot with like a little Fogarty balloon or? If it's a brand new graft and and I expect everything to be healthy, then sometimes I'll do just the Fogarty on the arterial side and I'll put my venous, I'll put the sheath for the arterial side very close to the venous anastomosis. And if it's a, if it's, you know, three, four weeks old and it clotted off, then a lot of times I'll, I, you can start with that. Okay. And I just get a lot of clot kind of clearance that way. And I'm not expecting anything else. And yeah, sometimes it's just easy to do the forwardy that way. You're right. Okay. And if you do decide to go device like the cleaner, are you using any uh, thrombolytics with that? I mean, I, I know that we had already, you had already said that you do the heparin after you do your central run, but any like TPA? So I don't use TPA as a norm. It's not my standard. I'll use it when I'm stuck, when I'm seeing resistant clot, or if I've got a large aneurysm burden also, I may take when my company's in there, kind of in the early step, I may drop a little bit, like usually two milligrams of TPA. But TPA is not a standard kind of step 
inside my, my thrombectomy. Usually what I do is when I grab my device, either the cleaner or the declot, if it's a standard graft, I kind of alternate back and forth. Sometimes I feel like a cleaner, sometimes I feel like a declot. I basically will just turn it on and I'll pull. And then through the side port, I will just slowly inject a little bit of contrast. So that way I can see if there's that I've kind of macerated thrombus burden as I'm doing the pullback. Okay. And so that way I've got the, the entire pullback. I've not even used 10 cc's of contrast usually to inject and I can see what my outflow looks like and where all my lesions are. The other thing I like about these devices is you will actually see the tip kind of get, or the, the rotational component kind of mm -hmm. get narrower as you come across a stenotic lesion. And so even without a contrast injection, you can usually identify if you're following it, you can usually identify where there's, you're going to come across a lesion along the way. Gotcha. All right. And so you mentioned uh, doing like a little bit of injection through the side port and you're talking about the side port of the device and not of the, the side device. Port of the, yeah. yeah. Of, okay. the, of the device, not the sheath. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So you've handled the outflow with what, you know, whether it be a balloon maceration or thrombectomy and you, you feel pretty good that you've macerated the, the clot burden. Um, what do you move to next? So if I've done the device, then I'll go do my angioplasty of the outflow. Okay. Right. If I'm doing balloon maceration, angioplasty is all done in one step. Uh, if I'm doing the device, then I'll go do my angioplasty. And I usually start with a seven millimeter balloon kind of as my standard for anything and, and everybody, unless it's a really small fistula or something I worry about. But usually a graft, I'll start with a seven millimeter balloon. Most okay. of our grafts here in the Dallas area are the tapered four to seven. And so most of the venous outflows is seven. And so that's, and, and that's also partly knowing like you're referring docs and, and what people are putting in, yeah. you know, that, but go ahead. But even if you don't know, you're safe to upsize by sure. one usually. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I say, even if it's a six millimeter straight graft, a seven millimeter balloon is going to be fine. So that's why I always start with a seven. Okay. All right. And so you've either done a combination of device and angioplasty or straight balloon maceration. And then do you move to placing your arterial sheath? Yeah. So after, and after I do the angioplasty, then I'll aspirate from that sheath. And because now if I've got, then I can basically establish black back bleeding. Okay. And so from my venous outflow, I've gotten the clot out and then whatever, I may pick up a few bits and pieces of clot from the aspiration from that sheath at that point. And it's all kind of through a back bleeding process. And so once I'm happy with that and I'll do a quick little injection, see what the outflow looks like. If that all good, looks good, then I'll put my second sheath in. Okay. So will you explain, will you just go into a little bit briefly about, for, for those who don't know, like, what do you mean by the back bleeding technique and, and like how you're aspirating from that venous sheath? And so once your outflow is reestablished and there's no significant clot burden, or if there's, even if there's a little bit, you're basically going to pull from your venous outflow. So if it's an upper arm vein, let's say you're pulling from the axillary and that will actually pull really well, usually. And so I can usually just aspirate a syringe, uh, maybe two syringes just to make sure that it's clean. And so I feel like I've gotten the outflow completely cleared of any re remaining clot. Okay. All right. So then you go arterial sheath and to recap, you did seven French for the venous outflow and then arterial inflow. Yeah. And what size sheath? Six French sheath here. Mm -hmm. So you have a six French, a short sheath directed towards the arterial inflow. And then it's another Cumpy and Gladwire across the anastomosis or? Yep. Okay. Yep. And that's basically it. If I'm, and it, 
the first time I'm doing everything, I will use a company to guide me. Once I know the patient's anatomy and what they're comfortable with, I'll usually just wire across with the, like if I'm doing the outflow, I'll just take the balloon and do my central anatomy imaging with the balloon. And then I pull back with the balloon and then I just angioplasty with the balloon. Okay. Right. So I'm not having to swap out everything. So same thing on the arterial side. Most of the time, if the wire goes straight up into the artery, then I'll just go in with a Fogarty. Um, okay. I try to focus on, I like having the wire proximal to the anastomosis in the artery. So into the brachial artery, going up towards the kind of axilla. And that way I can pull and I can go back and inject. But if it doesn't work and it goes down the arm towards the hand, I'm okay with that too, usually. Okay. So this is something that I wanted to talk about a little bit. So, you know, there are a lot of anastomoses out there that I, I think you can spend a lot of time trying to get central, it, meaning that you cross the anastomosis, but it, it, it's, it's going distally easily, but it's not able to come like up into the brachial artery. Yeah. So you're, you're still able to get the same results just by pulling the Fogarty from like, you know, the, the mid radial artery across the Correct. anastomosis. So usually I'll go for the ulnar side. Because okay. the ulnar artery is a little bit bigger, but you don't have to get that far. You don't even have, right. usually if it's an upper arm, you know, it's, it's high enough away from the bifurcation, but yeah, I like going up just because I think it saves me a little step down the line. But if it doesn't, because of whatever reason, and you're doing this blind, so you can't figure out why it's not going up and why it only goes down. It may be the way it's hooked around in the anastomosis created. So then if it constantly keeps going distal down the forearm, they say, okay, fine, let's just do it that way. Okay. Uh, so so do the Fogarty, and I, I always use an overwire Fogarty. Okay, yeah. Can you talk about the differences, like for the, the audience who may not do as many of these, or maybe we have plenty of trainees who listen, the difference between having your wire in the brachial or having your wire go distal and, and what the difference is and, and why it matters for you for either a subsequent step? So the, the next step is once I've, so, okay, so I'm going to pull with the Fogarty across the arterial anastomosis. I've got a syringe on each sheath. Okay. Okay. And so the one on the arterial sheath, the first, the seven French sheath towards the venous outflow is just hooked up and it's just kind of passive. And my tech is aspirating on the venous sheath. Okay. And so that one is more, a little bit more kind of active. And so I'll do usually two passes with the Fogarty balloon. The reason I have the syringe on the, on the seven French sheath is because usually once I clear to that level, that syringe will open up on its own. Okay. And so it gives me an indication that, okay, I've cleared up until this point, but if I'm unable to aspirate at the sheath where the Fogarty's in, then there's probably some clot right around there. And usually that's what happens that there's clot right around the sheath and it doesn't aspirate, but the other one will aspirate. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So two passes there. And then I just like to be able to, if my wire is in the brachial artery, then I just take the Fogarty up into the brachial artery and I do my injection. Okay. Do an arteriogram. And that's the only reason I really kind of like having it up there if it goes up that way. And say it's the other situation where you're only able to get your wire to go distally and then you've made your two Fogarty passes. Do you then um, take a catheter and try and renegotiate that wire up into the brachial? Okay. Yeah. You're, so, yeah, you're nodding, but yeah, I'll just yes, excuse yeah, the so, Yeah, so if I can't, if I'm not, because then at least what I will do is I'll just do a very slow injection through my sheath and let it go retrograde. And I can get a little silhouette of uh, what the arterial anastomosis anatomy looks like, right? And I do it slowly just in case there's still a little bit of clot there, a little plug there that I haven't fully cleared, then I don't want to 
push that, you know, go so, so heavily that I'm going to push that into the artery. But usually you can do it gradually just to see what the anatomy and the anastomosis looks like. And that way I can manipulate my company and my wire and steer and get up into the brachial artery. And I just wanted to drill down on that for a second for uh, some of the, maybe the uninitiated that, you know, whenever you're dealing with some clot that hasn't been cleared from your dialysis circuit, you don't want to blow in a whole bunch of contrast at the risk of blowing clot into the arterial, like into your inflow or outflow radial slash ulnar artery. All right. And so that's why I do that part really slowly. Yeah. Nice, gentle. And if I see residual, and if I do see some clot there, I'll do a couple more passes with the Fogarty. But most of the time that clot is still there because there's probably a stenosis there as well. And so if I'm unable to clear the clot with the Fogarty, I will just do an angioplasty balloon. And which size, uh, do you start with a particular size or do you do, do you have an injection that you're sizing it to the uh, stenosis? Either I'll do a five or a six millimeter. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any balloons that you kind of like for this area? Because I feel like sometimes your high pressure balloons, you know, I didn't even ask you that. Is there any particular balloons that you like for declots or you'll just take anything? I, I just take anything. The, okay. Our standard balloon is the Gladiator, which I think is the Mustang in the hospital. I think it's the same balloon. They just market it for outpatient versus inpatient differently. Huh. I had uh, no idea. But I, I believe it's basically the, the exact same balloon. So that's my standard kind of go-to balloon for everything. I will use a Conquest if I don't get full effacement with that balloon. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then at the arterial side, I will use the Ultraverse if it's a very tight bend, because sometimes that, that Gladiator doesn't want to make that U-turn up. Right. And so the Ultraverse has been really nice for that. So everything I do is over an 035. I think once a year, I may grab an 018 balloon system just to make that bend into the, into the artery, into a radial artery that the 035 system wasn't doing, but everything but, is 035. Yeah, but few and far between if you have to yeah. downsize wire, right? Right. Can you talk a little bit about angioplasty of or near the basically the arterial anastomosis or juxtarterial segment. It's It's been my experience that sometimes this can be like a very delicate area to work. And if you're overly aggressive, that you can actually, you know, shut down or dissect. You can dissect inflow, you can cause spasm. Can you kind of talk about some technique things there or, or for like how careful you have to be if you're going to be working in that spot? So I think the biggest issue there is really making sure you don't oversize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think if you're sized appropriately using whatever you want to do, if you've got the ultrasound, use the ultrasound and grab it and, and you can size it according to the artery and you should be fine. And then the, the amount of pressure that you do, most of the time I keep the arterial anastomosis around 10 or 12 atmospheres. Mm -hmm. I typically don't go higher than that. And that's usually sufficient. I don't do long inflations. Most of my inflations, venous or arterial are an up down. I'm happy with the way the balloon looks. Let's take it down, do another picture. I think that's um, something that can vary from operator to operator. And I think that if you're if you're doing these a lot, like an up-down technique, you realize is, is totally uh, sufficient for dialysis work. And I think that's, I think on the other hand, if you're someone who uh, dabbles a lot in like arterial revascularizations, you think about like these prolonged inflations and how you have to keep the catheter or, or you have to keep the balloon up. But I, I think I saw something a long t several years ago that showed a kind of a, you know, a short inflation versus like a three minute inflation. Mm -hmm. And I think the end, end decision was conclusion was, yeah, the final image looks good, but the re-intervention rate was unchanged. Good tip.
So, so yeah, so for dialysis, and, and, and you bring up a good point. I mean, for dialysis access, these are big vessels. These are really mostly compliant vessels. All you got to do is break the balloon open. Once it's open, I, I don't believe that you need to sit there and hold it open to change. So I go up, down, I do everything. You guys are the fluoro experts. I do everything with low dose and pulse on my uh, image intensifier so I can keep my dose quick. Uh, dose lower, sorry, yeah, yeah. my fluoro times quicker, just because, it, I mean, it's a six, seven millimeter vein graft drum, dropping into a 10 millimeter vessel. Why do I need full dose fluoro for that? All right. So at this point, you've tuned up the arterial anastomosis or the juxtarterial segment. Do you ever at any point use any devices in the arterial limb or across the anastomosis? I know. I've never done that. Okay. So, and I just, I don't know. I have never and so I, I will, I'll get close. If there's an aneurysm, you know, or an aneurysmal segment in that juxta anastomotic region, I'll put the device into there, but I'm very particular about not crossing the device into the artery. Okay. Fair. Can you talk a little bit, and, and this is something that I think only comes up when you're like in the procedure, but talk about sheath placement and why it's important to have a little bit of physical distance between the tips of your sheets. So, you know, like what, what I'm basically talking about is how to avoid like the dueling sheet situation where you have overlapping sheets and why that's such a pain in the ass. So, sometimes that's hard to do, but I always try to keep them away from each other because inevitably when you're doing the Fogarty, a lot of times that clot will come and kind of get stuck behind the sheets or between the sheets. And so then I'm pulling the sheath back or pulling one of the sheets out just so I can address the other one. And, and sometimes you get a lot of, it's like this little web of stuff that just slows the flow down. And so that's why I always try to keep, make sure my sheath, sheaths are far enough away from each other. Typically the places I will avoid are the cannulation zones because I expect to find disease there or right around there. Okay. Uh, I try not to get near the, or, and near each anastomosis. So I, I will stay proximal, but in the event that there's a juxta anastomotic stenosis or kind of a swing segment stenosis, I try not to put my seven front sheath into any of that either. Yeah. I think sometimes whenever you access too close, I access most of the time with ultrasound, but you know, kind of, I'll, I'll take it on a, a case by case basis. But what I've found is, especially in fistula work, if you access too close like into the juxtarterial segment where the vessel really narrows, then the sheath can become flow limiting as, as yes. you're yeah, moving past. Yes. Uh, and so yeah. that's a problem. And so then you got two sheaths that are touching, right. lapping, and yeah. then, it's just a, then it's just a hot mess. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. So you've treated the arterial side. You've treated, or sorry, you treated the venous side. Now you've treated the arterial side. What's next? Then you take a look and see what the rest of it looks like. And if I'm happy, then I'm happy. If there's a little recoil, I go address that. If then, so this is that polish stage, right? If there's a little recoil, if there's a little extra clot burden, maybe go after it with the cleaner or the balloon or the Fogarty and just kind of polish up what the outflow looks like. And then you're pretty much, you know, done. If there's a, a central lesion, now is the time to go assess the central again and see if I decide this to be a clinically, you know, important central lesion that I want to balloon. You know, I, ha I have had the scenario where patients did not have arm swelling before the declot and then I see something centrally during the declot and I say, well, they were asymptomatic before, so I leave it alone. And then two weeks later, they come back. And that was probably more indicative of the fact that they were a low flow headed towards failure dialysis sure. access, that the central lesion was not able to be symptomatic, that once I fully restored flow, then that central lesion became symptomatic. So it's one of those things that I kind of go, you know, case by case and if I know the history, I may go ahead and treat it. If not, usually I tell them, hey, there was something there. 
let's see how it does. But since you weren't having symptoms before, right, then I would assume that you won't have symptoms after. But if they do develop symptoms after, it's probably because that dialysis access was kind of putzing along for a long time anyway. Gotcha. And now that you've got it tuned up and, and highly flowing, then yeah, I can, I can see where that would become problematic with the central stenosis. So talking about the last section of the procedure, basically what you're calling the polish portion, I guess what what is your endpoint in terms of like, are you trying to evacuate every piece of clot that you see? Like, and, and I know it's hard to quantify like the clot, the residual clot burden that you're comfortable with, but how much clot burden are you comfortable with at the end? And does it change whether you have a fistula that you're declotting versus a graft that you're declotting? Uh, a graft for a graft? No. Most of the time, you know, it, it depends on where it is, but you know, if it hangs out at the venous anastomosis, I might think that, you know, there's, residual or recoil that's there. And a lot of times what I'll do is I'll take my Fogarty and just use it as a diagnostic kind of feel. So if you inflate the Fogarty and go forward, if it crosses the venous anastomosis without any difficulty and you're not getting a lot of resistance, I'll usually just say, okay, we're happy, we're good. But if I'm getting resistance pushing that Fogarty, then I'll say, you know what, there's probably some recoil here that maybe doesn't look as bad on imaging. And that's when you want to say, okay, do I want to come back and upsize the balloon, conquest the balloon, stent the outflow, uh, or that. Okay. That's fair. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this, I mean, really, if you think about how much clot is in a dialysis circuit, I mean, you're looking at five MLs, maybe seven MLs. Mm -hmm. right? It's not a lot of clot burden in there. So to say that I'm leaving a little bit behind, I mean, how much am I leaving behind? Well, I guess, so I've, I've run across different people with different schools of thought, and I've seen some people who believe that, you know, it's, it's sacrilege to leave any amount of clot in, in graphs because they think that that clot is thrombogenic. And then if you leave anything in the, in the circuit, that that clot then is seeds the the rest of the clot and it you know creates like you know a clot bomb and then I've seen some people who are just more forgiving of the fistula they say you know like it's an aneurysm segment it's it's sometimes difficult to clean out the whole thing right you'll you know you would spend you know your whole day trying to uh, clean out a uh, dial or an aneurysmal uh, fistula segment so I I go a lot by exam here mm -hmm. okay because if I've got a good thrill. Yeah, and it's not pulsatile, and I don't feel that resistant kind of pulsatile outflow. Then I say, you know what, this is probably not a hemodynamically significant residual clot, right? You're absolutely right. These large ones are hard to open up, and there's a, there's actually a, a handful of nephrologists that'll do a mini open thrombectomy, where they'll just make a little cut down into that aneurysm, squeeze it all out, and then close it off. And they basically will will just they'll basically put a balloon on each end, mm -hmm. so they've got you know, hemostasis, hemostasis and, and control, you know, proximal and distal controls. So they'll put a Fogarty up, they'll put a balloon up, and then you can cut down to the aneurysm, express out all the clot, close that up, and then continue on with your percutaneous kind of side of it. So it's kind of a mini open is what they call it. And, and that's a really fascinating technique. And sometimes, because I'll tell you the times that I struggle are that are there. So the ones that I struggle with are the big aneurysms, and making sure I've got adequate clearance of all that. And that's why I like the, the cleaner 15 for that. I think it does really well with that. And, I, and that's why I'll use TPA there. The other one I'll struggle with is with a patient that had a, for example, brachiocephalic fistula that then got converted into a graft and the surgeon has decided to anastomose the PTFE 
to the original AV fistula as opposed to making a new or true arterial anastomosis. So you've got this dilated vein stump between the artery and the PTFE. And a lot of times the graft segment opens up really easy. Right. The outflow is easy. It's that little segment that I sit there and I, I spend a lot of time on. And that may be an additional, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes just working on that little segment. Gotcha. So all in all, and one thing that I deliberately haven't asked you is how, what is your average time in, in starting and ending a decline? Like how long does it take you? I think average is probably between, it's probably, a, I would say 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes for a graft. For a graft. Mm-hmm. You know, fistulas take a little bit longer, sometimes a little more unexpected. So 15 to 20 for a fistula. Heroes actually can be really quick. So heroes you can get open in under 10 minutes. Sometimes those things are very blood pressure dependent. So there's no even lesion. So a hero graft, I will always use, because it's so long, I will always use a rotational device. So I'll do a rotational device through the outflow, Fogarty on the inflow. And sometimes that's it. I mean, for a hero, that's all it takes. Will you, just for, for some of our audience, we tell some, everyone what a hero uh, is and, you know, why they're so much easier? So a hero is a combination of a graft and a catheter in concept. It's actually a five millimeter. The catheter half of it is, is a, I think it's a five millimeter covered stent basically, but it goes through one of the veins. Usually it's an IJ, but I've seen some through the axillary vein as well. And just like a perm cath, it, the tip of it is positioned in the right atrium. And then usually near the shoulder joint is where the graft, instead of being anastomosed to the vein, there is anastomosed to this hero outflow component. And so usually you've got a six or seven millimeter graft from your arterial anastomosis to your hero transition. And then it's a five millimeter outflow component all the way into the right atrium. So you've got no venous outflow at all. Right, right, right. Yeah. All right. So, you know, aside from that segue into the the hero category, it takes you, you said about 15, 20 minutes for a graft. Maybe you said 20, uh, 25 minutes for a fistula. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Usually, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I'm pushing 20 minutes, then my staff are starting to get antsy with me. <laughs> and, and usually it's because there is one kind of residual, I mean, it's usually in the polish stage where it's this, just this one little piece that I feel like I need to get either in the inflow or less often in the outflow. In the outflow, if I get annoyed, I'll just put a stent graft across it and I'm done. But sometimes, a lot of times it's this one little plot in the inflow that I, I think is still impeding flow that I just have to address over and over again. And, and that's really what it, you end up, I think most of my time is spent in the polishing stage. The outflow is a couple of minutes. The inflow is a couple of minutes. And then it's just a matter of, of getting it, it flow established, you know, adequately and, and comfortably. Okay. One of the things that I felt like was kind of an unlock for me in terms of, of getting my uh, procedure time down is I, if, if I know which ways inflow and if I know which ways outflow, I will go ahead and place my seven French sheath, which I use a seven to six, you know, venous and arterial respectively. I'll put my seven French sheath in and then I'll just go ahead because I'll, a lot of times I'm accessing with ultrasound, um, I'll access, I get my seven French in and then also get my six French in at the same time. That way I've just taken care of the sheath work. I've taken care of most of my ultrasound work and then I can just do, start going to work on the procedure. But in your situation, it sounds like you're always kind of treating outflow, then coming back, doing inflow and then polishing up the rest. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I will sometimes put in both sheaths just for no reason, but sure. yeah, but most of the time it's really because I, I just, when I, I want, before I put that second sheath in, I want to make sure that whole segment's cleared. 
And if that sheath is there, then that slows down how long it takes me, or sometimes it gets in the way of mm -hmm. me clearing it, especially if I'm using a rotational device, right? Balloon, you can do comfortably. You can balloon around the sheath and it's fine. But if you're doing a rotational device then that kind of gets in the way, or if there's a wire there, that kind of gets in the way. So that, that's why I don't put that second sheath in right away. This is fair. Have you ever uh, snagged uh, the Triatola on one of the sheets? I have, you know, and it's, it's, none of them are fun. Right, right, right. And they all kind of, if there's anything in the way of these rotational devices, it will win. I always kind of say, you know, if it's a rotational device versus the wire, the wire is going to win. Yeah. You know, the, the argon gets tangled up around it. The D-clot doesn't, I mean, less so, but still it kind of gets in the way of, of it being able to do what it needs to do. So I always try to keep that clean and that that's and clear and nothing else in there. Yeah, that's fair. Aaron, do you want to jump in with something? Yeah, you kind of already touched on this, but a quick question about timing and um, the devices. Do you find that the devices help decrease procedure time? Are you just balancing that with the cost in terms of your decision to, to use a device? It, it, it usually does decrease the procedure time and, and it depends on the length and, and kind of, of the disease circuit, right? So if I'm, yeah. if I've got a loop graft that's stented all the way up to the axilla, it's just going to be faster for me to grab a device and just pull that all the way through the outflow. And then that, be, as opposed to going and, and that way I just go balloon one location, right? Two locations that I see as opposed to going and ballooning the entire different segment, I think like that's a little bit faster. And I think I get a little bit better, you know, kind of clearance of thrombus burden using the device than using the balloon. I don't know that there's actually any data that suggests that one is actually better than the other as far as balloon versus, you know, these rotational devices or these catheter aspiration. You know, you guys have this CAT6, CAT8 stuff that looks really cool. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know that one device actually technically performs better than another device. So for me, it's a matter of what I think is going to be faster and, and a little bit safer. Patients that have a large clot burden, I tend to reach the device first. Yeah, that, I mean, that was kind of my next question is, other than devices being cost prohibitive in certain settings, are there any other disadvantages to using a device or is it really just the time saver? So if there's a lot of disease in the circuit, and I pull the device all the way through and then I've got my, you know, my kind of final image, my pre-angioplasty image, and I've got, you know, balloon here, 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 here. Then I kind of sit there and say, well, if I was, if I knew I was going to balloon all of that anyway, I could have ballooned yeah. it into the maceration all in one step. Right. Gotcha. And so that's why I tend to only do it when there's a long circuit where I anticipate, you know, one or two balloon locations for angioplasty. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to get into like the troubleshooting component of, of things that I think can, can kind of hang people up. And that's if you have like a, a recalcitrant stenosis, you mentioned it, but I, I have a feeling it'll get glossed over to where if, if something doesn't efface, like if a stenosis doesn't efface with the Mustang, you mentioned that you go to another balloon. And would you talk about a little bit about that and why you go to that balloon? So usually I'll go to a conquest. My conquest goes to 40. They used to have a 30 also, I think, but I have the Conquest 40. So I'll go, I can go up to 40 atmospheres there. And usually I'll keep that at the same size. Sometimes if that waist is really tight, I may actually downsize my Conquest first just to avoid the extravasation. Okay. Because let's say it's a seven millimeter balloon and it's still, you know, at 25 or 30 atmospheres because I'll push these balloons. I'll get up to 25 comfortably and sometimes even 30. Well, let's say I still look like what's what I think is a 50% waste, then I may grab a six millimeter conquest 
Gotcha. Get that fully effaced and then come back with my seven millimeter again, just to make sure that I'm not going to, you know, I don't know. It's probably just as safe to grab a seven conquest and just do it. I just feel like sometimes I, I, you know, you want to be cautious and you think I'm being much more cautious if I grab a six versus a seven. The reality is you're probably, you know, it, it might not make any difference. It but probably it doesn't feel, make any different, yeah. but it makes sometimes, us feel better. Yeah. Sometimes you have to treat the operator. You mentioned that my next thing that I wanted to bring up is what happens if you do injure the vessel? Um, like, you know, it's a, like I said, Venus in out, uh, Venus uh, outflow stenosis. You do your post run and you see some extrav. Will you talk about your protocols, how, how you work through that? So then I'll just take the balloon up there and I'll hold it for like three minutes or so mm-hmm. and just do another run and see. Most of the time that takes care of it. If I have a, a massive extrav and a very large one, especially something that I can see kind of, you know, a hematoma forming in the arm is when I'll grab a stent graft. But most of the time it's, you know, it's small enough that if you just hold the balloon up there, it'll, it'll tamponade off on its own. Yeah. But you're, just holding, you're, you're just holding pressure, whether you right. do it from outside or inside, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, that, that that's also been my experience that, you know, it's funny that we, we did a lot of these in fellowship and I don't remember ever rupturing a fistula or uh, a graft and, and then it happened to me like twice in my first year. And, and, you know, they, they tell you the trick. Like I, I, I'll say another thing that I do is like whenever I, I pull uh, a balloon out to do a, a run, I always keep the balloon on the wire, very close to the sheath. I mean, that was something that was kind of drilled into me. My techs are always very quick. They want to get that balloon off, but I just hold it right there, like near the sheath. And that way you're always in a position to run that balloon right up right. and, and tamponade. Right. Yeah, yeah. The balloon, just pull it just out the side of the sheath and you're done. And I will say for this tamponading, I mean, it's just usually six, six right. atmospheres, eight atmospheres, just to get the minimum pressure. Yeah. Chris, that was the first case, I, first dialysis case I did with McBreamy, with Peter Bream. <laughs> That he drilled that into me. Did yeah. he always keep your balloon right here just in case? And and you know why? Because that that first case, it ruptured and we threw the balloon back in and blew it up. And so it like I always remember that. Even though I don't I don't think I've had any instances of it either, but it's just yeah, it's just like the smart thing to do. You know, the other thing you can do in case you don't have balloon access in mm-hmm. or the balloon if it is off the table and you're waiting, you just put your thumb on the graph right sure. behind that sheath. Right. Just control the inflow and then it's not going to bleed either. So there's, there's lots of ways to do it. I think, you know, the easiest way is, yeah, just take the balloon in there and, and go. There have been a few instances where, you know, I, I, I have lost wire access and I'm trying to get the wire back across. So in that point, I will get, you know, my Fogarty back into the proximal graft and I'll do proximal art control with the Fogarty. And then that way I'm not flowing out while I'm trying to wire back across the outflow. So I've got time to get my wire back across the outflow. Most of the time I do it with a single wire. So I'll pull the wire and, and I just do a, use a Benson. I'll pull the Benson and then I'll go to the arterial side and pull a Benson unless it was something really tight where I say, you know what, I don't want to lose this wire or, or a lesion that was really difficult to cross to where I say, oh, I don't want, you know, I spent a couple of minutes trying to cross it. I don't want to do that again. I'll leave the wire. But if the wire goes up very quickly and easily and the outflow opens up the way I expect, then I just pull that wire and I use it on the arterial side also. Okay. That's a good question. Fritz, do you do something similar or do you I always feel like I leave my, like I'm always in a two, I'm always in a two wire system. Like I just, uh, when, once I get the wire across, like I'm never pulling the wire until I'm For sure. I, I, yeah. I was always taught to keep the wire across no matter yeah. what. Now that I think about it, hearing it from the guy, I mean like when. Yeah. It, yeah, if it goes up I'm, easily, that goes up easily. It's not like it's a, you know. Yeah. Right. I mean, if it goes up and you've done your, if you've done an angioplasty and you've done an image and you know sure. there's no improvisation. Right. But 
audit across while it was almost, you know, 95% occluded, you're going to get across it afterwards also. Right. But I just pulled a wire, use it on the other side, because usually once I've done the Fogarty and I'm happy with my inflow, I never go back to it. Yeah. Right? Okay. I usually will go back to the outflow and readdress the outflow, but I never go back to the inflow. So you can make the argument also that, you know what, I'm going to go back to the outflow anyway, so leave the wire up there. But gotcha. I, I, I think this is one of those things that, yeah, everybody's kind of done their own way and the, their mm-hmm. own thing. And, and it, it's fine either way. There's no real advantage one way or the other. Agreed. So let's talk about lesions where you decide to stint. I mean, like taking extrav off the table, like which, which lesions and at what point do you decide to stint? And when you are stinting, does it depend on location of whether you're going to use uh, bare metal versus um, stint graft? Always a stent graft. Bare metal is yeah. gone. Okay. So always a stent graft. I, th- I think the bare metal, I mean, the data is there just to show that the bare metal is just not that good. And so for me, it's always a stent graft and I'm choosing between the Viabon and the Covera. Okay. And usually the costs are pretty comparable for me uh, there. The Covera has a flared option, which I like. Mm-hmm. And so when you've got, you know, a graft, a seven millimeter that opens up into a 10 or 11 millimeter axillary, then the Covera there is actually kind of what I prefer because it opens up into that larger vein. And so I'll use the flared Covera there. But otherwise, I think the use of them are, are pretty much the same. But it really boils down to how resistant that lesion is. The other thing to keep in mind that's in the workflow now is the drug-coated balloons, right? So actually, yes, that was kind of on on like my footnotes of things. Oh, that did I, I, did I jump ahead? No, man, jump in. <laughs> so let's talk about the the DCBs for um, the dialysis circuit. Do you use them during a declot or, or do you declot then bring them back if you have something that oh, you if, wanna... I, if, if I want to do it, I'll use it during a declot. Okay. The, you know, the problem with the, with the DCBs is that there's no reimbursement for it. Right. Well, but the advantage is that both the Lutonix and the impact balloon, they've given me kind of a 12 month guarantee that if I need to re-intervene and it's not just for me, I mean, it's not for me. The sure. Sure. It's not just for, yeah. right. I like to think that they did. <laughs> like the sun is just yeah, shining on your yeah, like, Oh, you know what? You want it? That's fine. <laughs> right. So at least that way it kind of helps offset it if it if I feel like it, did, it didn't work. It makes me feel better that, all right, I've tried it and it didn't work. I've kind of got this 12-month guarantee and I just tell them and they replace the balloon, right? So, so no harm done that way. So I think that actually is coming in before the stent graft. Okay. It is... And it's trying to figure out where that's going to fall into the algorithm. But I think normally I would say that falls into the algorithm before the stent graft does or should, particularly in lesions and in areas where we're cannulating and it's hard to stent Mm -hmm. because I don't like cannulating the stent, you know, a, a stented region. I've seen too many stent fractures from that. So I try to avoid cannulating in the grafter in the fistula where they're going to be using it. So for there, I'll lean definitely towards a drug-coated balloon. But I think it's, but yeah, if, if I feel like it's resistant or going to come back, I will lean towards a, the DCB more on a repeat procedure than on a first procedure. Fair enough. Yeah. So let's say I'm doing the declot and it's their first time here and I've got recoil like crazy, then stent graft it and be done, right? Because I'm afraid they're going to come back. Right. But Usually, let's say I've done it, I was happy with the outcome, but they come back two, three weeks, four weeks later, I will upsize it. And let's say they come back a third time within a month because my final images look good. They just are not holding, Mm -hmm. right? Then I'll say, okay, you know what? This is the scenario for a DCB. Gotcha. So there's two two more things that I want to cover before we wrap things up. And one one I should also ask 
is is so the only anticoagulation you give is the 5,000 of heparin in the beginning? Is there any added? Do you, I mean, your procedure is pretty quick. I assume you're not doing intermittent heparin. Do you? No, I actually, I always do do a little heparin at the end and I don't know. Okay. I give another 5,000 at the end. So the total will be 10,000. Gotcha. Okay. And then what do you do for either closure or hemostasis once you're all finished? Oh, we just take the sheets out and pull. And so I use a stat seal, which has the hemostatic disc. Okay. And so usually about five minutes of pressure with that. And I'll use that for a six, seven and eight French sheath. If I'm going bigger than an eight French, I'll put a purse string around it and send them home with that. But otherwise I do the stat seal and that way it's just the disc and a dressing over it and they take it off the next day and there's no more sutures to worry about. The dialysis clinics around the area are very reluctant to remove the sutures sometimes. And so some of these patients that have to come back, you know, just to get a suture removal, I think is silly. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, put the stat seal, manual hemostasis, they're in recovery 30 minutes and they're out the door. Nice. Very nice. Very quick. So in terms of the follow-up, do you do anything to, is it up for the, the dialysis clinics to be doing some uh, basically surveillance on these patients, either with like recirculation or they're doing physical exams? Like how do people get fed back into you? So you avoid the declot and you catch them with like, you know, some kind of fischlagram maintenance. Yeah. So opening up. that's at the dialysis level. So they're gotcha. doing, sur- they're doing surveillance either with flow studies. There's two, there's a couple of different devices to measure flow studies out there that each clinic kind of has, or each dialysis provider, I should say, have. They do physical examination. They go symptoms. The patients say, I'm bleeding too long after dialysis. Right. I can't stop. So they know to come back. So the dialysis clinic and the patients are usually the ones that are responsible. I might, depending on the disease severity, I might say, come back, let me just do uh, a physical exam myself. So so I may bring them back just for physical examination after a month, after a declot, just to say, let me take a look and see what it feels like and make sure that it's not acting up again. But most of the time I leave it up to the dialysis center. Okay. And let me uh, ask you like a, a specific scenario that uh, may or may not come up in your practice, but say you're seeing someone on a, a semi-regular basis, like every month, or you can even take it down to every week or two weeks where you're having to do a declot. It, do you, at what point do you say, you know, this isn't working, let's have this either surgically revised or put in a catheter or, or, or what do you do with that scenario where you feel like you're having to see that patient over and over for declot? Yeah. So that's always the, the tricky one, right? That's the one we don't like talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Usually at that point I'm, I'm coordinating with the surgeons and saying, all right, I've done this guy three times this month. What's our next plan of option? I think the issue is this. And if it's an outflow one that I can stent, I will do that. If it's an inflow that I think I need patched, then I kind of coordinate with him and, and with the surgeon and I say, all right, how are we going to do this? Are we going to do this now, next week, or should I put in the catheter and let you deal with it? And usually if I can coordinate something pretty quick, like in the next week or so, and I think that they're holding open for that week, then I will, I'll go ahead and just do the declot again. And I'll say, okay, fine, let me open you up and then let him revise you as an outpatient. And they'll just schedule them straight to the OR. And so that's usually when I'm kind of calling the surgeon and say, all right, don't see this guy in the office. Just let me declot him. You take him to the OR, patsy arterial anastomosis, and we're good. Um, It's the ones where we don't know what's happening that we kind of struggle, where we start adding in Plavix and Eliquis. And I don't know that any of that, again, that treats us. Yeah, it may treat us more than it treats the patient. So typically I don't put anybody on anticoagulation only for repeated thrombotic episodes. 
I'll probably go and it looks at the, but it looks at the interval, but generally three or four thrombectomies inside of a month. And that's when I may say, you know what, either this one is done and we've just been trying to salvage it or, and then put in a catheter, or it's a specific focal lesion every time that isn't holding. And I want a surgical revision of that, or it's the venous outflow that I just need a bypass segment of that. And if it's something that looks like an easy surge, relatively easy surgical fix, where I anticipate, hey, if you just do this little bit and we should be fine, then, you know, I'll declot them again and get them, let the surgeon do their picks. But if it's, if, if it's a failing, it's a five years old, seven years old, you know, kind of thing, then you just, at that, at that point I say, look, it's done. Let's just put in a catheter and go. Okay. That's fair. All right, Aaron, any other questions? Did I leave anything out? Nah, man, you beat me to a lot of questions. So I think we, right. we covered everything. Okay. Aaron, you came and spent the day with me. Yes. So what did yeah. you think? So I, I was telling Chris some of the tricks that I picked up with. One was the the aspiration from the sheath as you're pulling the Fogarty back. That I had never seen before. And I thought that was a really cool trick to help, you know, really help help get some of that clot out. Because then you, you showed it. You showed how much clot you pulled out. And I was used to always just pulling the Fogarty back and then letting it flow, you know, with, with everything else. But I think that that's, I think that that makes a significant difference. And I mean, it's just the, the efficient rate of speed yeah. by which you do it. And you know, the, the techs all know your next move. I mean, that all makes a huge difference, right? Right. I mean, I, like I said, we're, you know, for somebody like myself, or I don't know how Chris probably does D-class more often, but guys that do them like once a month and labs, more importantly, labs that only do them once a month slows everything way down, right? Because they're just, they forget how to set everything up. They don't, they, you know, they're just standing there and handing you wires and stuff. But it, it's, I think part of it is just well-trained staff. I think that's a huge part Staff of it. makes a huge difference. We, yeah. always, we always underestimate how, how important the staff are because if they can anticipate your next move. Yeah, yeah. Right? And with yeah. imaging too, right? I mean, you have somebody that's, you know, they've got it squared away for you. You're, yes. you're really just focusing on, you know, where you got to go and, and they're taking care of the rest. I mean, that, that's a big difference. So those are the main things that stuck out to me. And then just not, you know, being able to do all that without TPA using the, the devices, you know, Chris and I trained similarly where, you know, I was trained just comfy catheters, four milligrams of TPA, lace the clot, you know, pull as you pull back and then go in and balloon macerate everything, push it out pull with the Fogarty, but that still took for, I mean, it's felt like it took two hours to do a yeah, declot. But, see, know? but that's, that was, that's, yeah, that's the basic declot. Yeah. It just, yeah, it's still forever. the same. Yeah. It's still all the same components. You just said it outflow info polish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I will say that I, I get, I get bogged down one. I, I'll, I'll throw a tip out there for our audience in that I think for declots, is interventional radiologist, and I don't know how other people run their practice, but for some reason, if I get impatient, I start wanting to do more things myself. Like I'll start grabbing for things. I'm loading things up on the wire and that's out of my frustration. But for declots, you really have to be a general. And like, I'll tell my text, like before we get started, I'm like, I'm going to bark a lot of orders and I'm going to expect you to be on your game. Like it's, it's declots when I want to really move fast. And I really stay in one position and let everything come to me because it's whenever I start flailing around is when I think I get sloppy. The other thing that I learned from Aaron after he went and worked with you, Nagai, was the amount of polish that I'm putting on afterwards. Sometimes I'm just like like going after every little small piece of clot and I 
I, I guess I was just like, oh, I don't have to do that. And then it was like, it was like someone took a burden off me. <laughs> well, you showed me the guy. I mean, you, you, you would point out, okay, see, you're like, watch this little piece of clot. And then we do, you do a run like two minutes later and it's gone because yeah. the flow helped get rid of it. Right. And you don't have to go in there and balloon every little piece of clot that's hanging on. Yeah. You know? And so I will take the forwardy. I think take the forwardy towards the outflow as part of the polish stage. And yeah. then, especially if that fogarty will, will, and that's one of the reasons I like the overwire fogarty is because I can lock it, mm-hmm. right? So I'll just inflate it and lock it and I'll just polish or floss with it. And if it goes all the way into the outflow and, and I don't feel any resistance, it's fine. Yeah. Right. And if the, if the graft is not pulsatile and the fistula is not pulsatile, a lot of the, you could you, you get used to examining the fistula after each stage. Mm-hmm. of and each step that you do it and see how that exam changes because that will guide you also and then suddenly you get this great thrill and all the resistance is gone and everything is it feels great well at that point you can say all right you know we're done you do a quick run to, to kind of correspond with it but that becomes a good guide for you also more than the images and so if you've got clot but it feels great you know and, and it's just a little piece of clot that we're that's hanging out you know, a lot of times, and, and I think that's kind of where my voodoo for this extra 5,000 of heparin at the end comes in, that, you know, that should take care of that. Yeah, there's actually a good expression, a guy who uh, taught me how to do declots and talking about examining the fistula after each stage of the declot, he would say, uh, you know, treat treat the patient, not the pictures. And that applies to so much of what we do in interventional radiology, but I think that really, that point really distills it. All right, well, I feel like we covered uh, a lot as far as the declots. Nagai, I really appreciate you uh, coming on again and uh, sharing some of your insight um, and your expertise on the procedure. We always like having you on. Thank you, guys. It was, it was fun being on like always. Yeah. And I hope it wasn't like, I know, like, as we were getting into it, you're like, what is anyone going to want to know about, about declots? But I think like after this conversation, I mean, there were a lot of potential tips and concepts that I think are going to help people who either don't do this as frequently as you or, you know, some of our trainees, we have a lot of trainee audience. I, I think, I think that's good. And it's, it's always good. You know, nothing I do is a gold standard, right? It's, it's a lot of how I was taught and things I've picked up along the way and talking to somebody else and, you know, even in our practice, there's two IRs. We're not all INs. So talking to them, picked up a little tricks from them, talk to other people, do things th- this way. And so I think it's one of those exchange of ideas where I think that this is a good, you know, a, a nice thing to have is how do we exchange ideas to, to, to pick it up? Yeah. I, you know, hospital based labs and have all the toys in the world. And I wish I could have that, but you know, I can't, and I've got to be able to turn people around and turn my rooms around to, to get through my day also, you know, it's not uncommon between, you know, we don't like it, but we've done between two rooms and two docks, we've done 10 declots in a day, you know, even as a solo with doc, if my partner was off and I was solo, I think my highest was seven or eight declots in a day uh, with two rooms. So, so you, you know, when you have that kind of turner, okay, that kind of volume, you kind of have, you can't, you have to figure out how to make it go. Yeah. No, I understand. All, All right. right. Cool. Uh, Always a pleasure. Thanks to Guy. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks. All right. So to the audience, thank you guys for listening. We covered uh, a fun topic today, and I hope you guys enjoyed uh, hearing about uh, some different perspectives and different tips with regards to the D-clot and dialysis access maintenance. If you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, check out the show notes of this episode. Those are going to be able to be found at www.backtable.com. 
Um, we'll have links to anything that we referenced during the show. And if we had an article, we'll make sure we pop that in there. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. This helps us in so many different ways. Plus, we love to get the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast. Thanks again, the guy. Thank you.